This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads at our website ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Good afternoon. Um, when I was asked to uh, tackle this subject, I responded to your booking secretary by saying I am willing to take this subject on, but I think I describe myself as something of a science numpty. So I said you're going to get a layman's view of it. But then I thought, well, I needed to try, at least try and address some of the arguments around the creation versus evolution uh, debate. So, um, uh, and, and then I noticed on our bookshelves uh, a book that was commended to us uh, by uh, a lovely uh, chap in the, uh, in the Lake District uh, when he heard that my son was going to read uh, philosophy at university. And uh, he was a bit worried about it and he thought, right... I want him to read this book, uh, and it's by a man called Anthony Flew, and um, uh, it's entitled, There is no, crossed out, there is a God. Um, and uh, Dr, I think, Professor Flew um, charts and chronicles in this book his journey from a staunch atheist to a believer in God. And uh, I thought, well, that's a fairly good place to start. Um, and uh, and, it, and there's, there's a lot of compelling stuff in it, stuff that I'm sure people will, will find flaws in, a flaw in the flu. Uh, but um, uh, it, it makes for compelling stuff. Um, yesterday, I thought, I, I better find where this quote comes from that I'm supposed to be uh, addressing uh, in my talk. And, uh, and discovered, as I should have known already, of course, that it came from Isaiah 40. And I'm sorry if that reading was rather long, uh, but I think it's a fantastic chapter. Isaiah chapter 40 is a fantastic ch chapter. And I think it encapsulates so much of, of what, what we are really trying to say. Um, it, there are aspects of, of, of references to the, the New Testament. Uh, there's repeated uh, reference to, to God as the creator, obviously. Uh, and then verse 28 of Isaiah 40, we actually come to the, the quote, which is the, the basis for our talk this afternoon, as I'm sure you noticed. Um, at, at a point where uh, the writer, speaking on behalf of, of God, is, is, is challenging those who were supposed to be God's people, the people of Israel, challenging them with their questioning God's justice, which is effectively what they were doing, they're saying, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, this is at verse 27 of Isaiah 40, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God, Okay, so you, you people of Israel, you're, you, you, 
you're effectively saying God has, has forgotten about us, God is overlooking us, God really doesn't actually care about us that much anymore. And Isaiah the prophet says to them, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. So, to paraphrase slightly, he's really saying, how, how dare you? How dare you say that, that, that God has grown tired, or that God has, has somehow failed or faded in his purpose with you? That is not the case at all. This is the God who is the everlasting God, He's, with, he's without beginning, he's without end. Impossible for us to fathom, as the writer then reminds us. And he doesn't grow weary. So he hasn't forgotten about you, nor, as it quaintly says in another part of the Bible, is his arm short to, to save those that he cares for. Of course, you are still in his thinking. You are still in his plan and purpose. So, so that's the, the, the basis of, um, of this talk, really. The fact that God is all-powerful and that he has not neglected any part of his purpose. As I said... There is um, a reference near the start of the chapter which points forward. Uh, I'm not really going to be talking about God's purpose being fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus, given that the nature of, of the talk really today is, is about establishing God as creator. But, but if you look briefly at verse 3 of Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling... In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Those words are specifically applied in the New Testament to the work of the man known as John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the Lord, in this case, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a subject for another day, but... The, this is why this is such uh, a great chapter, because it, it, it encompasses so much uh, of God's workings with humankind, not just the people wrote, written to as, as Israel here. Just a little bit more. Um, verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all human faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. Now, Scripture is full of references to God as creator. Um, and the challenge to us is do we do we take on board God as creator or do we reject it if we take on board the notion of God as creator what are the implications 
for us. Well, the psalmist um, also reflected on, on God's glory uh, in a, a, a very well-known passage, Psalm 8. Uh, and I think the, the perspective of the psalmist, in this case David, he's not the only one who wrote psalms, but this is one of his, I think it beautifully uh, evokes a, a sense of of wonder, but also of of gratitude for what God does for His creation. We could read it all, but the time doesn't permit. Look at verse three of um, of Psalm eight. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What are mere mortals that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. As I was saying, we have the challenge of, if, if we take on board the notion of God as creator, then, as the psalmist says, we've been made custodians. We've been given this, this position at the top of either the tree or the pyramid, however you want to see it. And with that comes a huge responsibility. And elsewhere, uh, in the life of Job, Job has cause to question the, the goodness, uh, the fairness and the justice uh, of God. Uh, and if you read the account of Job, in many ways it's sobering and, and, and very sad because uh, this man Job, by the things that he suffers and the so-called friends who come to be with him, uh, by their criticism of him, their condemnation of him, they drive him more and more extremely to, to say, God has treated me unfairly. If God were a just God... I would not be suffering like this. This is the, effectively what Job is, is saying by the end of the, towards the end of the account. Changes by the very end. But towards the end, that's the way he's going. God is treating me unjustly. And um, Job is challenged, uh, first of all, by a young man called Elihu, as, as are all the... Uh, protagonists in this situation and then by God himself and God effectively says to Job who do you think you are to question my goodness now again the, the, the question of the problem of suffering why does a benign God allow suffering is is far too big a question for me to deal with today and, and I'm not sure I can deal with it very effectively anyway because it challenges us all 
all the time I suspect but but God speaks to Job out of the storm it says in Job chapter 38 um, and he speaks to him in these terms who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge prepare to defend yourself I will question you and you shall answer me where were you when I laid the earth's foundation tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it on what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place when I said this far you may come and no farther here is where your proud waves halt God's saying I made it all it's my world it's it's my earth it's my universe it's my creation and it's my rules Job my creation my rules as Isaiah said his understanding we cannot fathom sorry if that sounds like a cop out but that's what I'm saying and there's many situations that come into our lives that we struggle to deal with and struggle to understand and things happen around this world that we struggle to understand but you either take it that this is God's creation and that he cares for it and he manages it or you reject the notion I'm not saying that there aren't people throughout the scripture account who question God who inverted commas challenge God who, who negotiate with God it happens but ultimately God says my creation I decide little further on in Job the Lord said to Job at chapter 40 will the one who contends with the almighty correct him let him who accuses God answer him then Job answered the Lord I am unworthy how can I reply to you I put my hand over my mouth I spoke once but I have no answer twice but I will say no more then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm prepare to defend yourself I will question you and you shall answer me would you discredit my justice would you condemn me to justify yourself if I were God it wouldn't be like this if I were God that wouldn't happen if I were God I wouldn't let them behave that way there wouldn't be free will then there wouldn't be the ability of people or for people to, to choose whether to serve God or not just one more quote from uh, the middle of the Old Testament we've already read from Isaiah 40 have a quick look if you would at Isaiah 45 again it's those who put their wisdom above the wisdom of the almighty Isaiah 45 and verse 9 
Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds, among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say, The potter has no hands? Woe to those who say to their father, What have you begotten? Or to their mother, What have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created human beings on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. So, what are they, those who say, well, it's all very well the Bible saying these things. That's, that's just the Bible sort of maintaining a, an internal consistency. Who is to say that the Bible is true when it speaks about a, a creator? Well, I suppose that's the, the, the view that Anthony Flew took. But um, it's interesting when uh, when you reflect on uh, on other minds other people who uh, weren't happy with the notion necessarily of of god the creator uh, there's a quote here from um somebody who i suppose is regarded as the uh uh well, know, the bet noir of, uh, of of creationists um I'll not tell you who he is yet. But these are his words from one point in his life. Reason tells me of the extreme difficulty, or rather impossibility, of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe, including man with his capability of looking far backwards and far into futurity, as the result of blind chance or necessity. When thus reflecting, I feel compelled to look to a first cause, having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man. And I deserve to be called a theist. Now many of you may recognise those of, as the words of Charles Darwin. Um, now, to be fair, <laughs> I don't know at what point of his life this was written. It's included in the autobiography of Charles Darwin published by Collins in 1958 quite a long time after he died so I suppose he wasn't going to take issue with it uh, but there's a man there who has become synonymous with the idea of, of, of evolution and yet who here and I say I, I admit I don't know at what point of his life it was was, was acknowledging that he felt there had to be. <laughs> I mean, um, it may seem rather uh, bringing God down to say having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man. Well, to some degree, to a very, very small degree, I suppose we would say that, that God's mind is analogous to that of us. And I deserve to be called a theist. Um, it's at this point that um, uh, you have to imagine that I'm holding a peacock feather in my hand. It's the one visual aid I was going to bring with me today, and it's on my whole table. Very nice peacock feather. Uh, the peacock feather caused Darwin quite a few problems. 
Uh, in fact, to quote him at one point in his life, he said, The sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. Um, why? This beautiful, beautiful thing of blues and greens and jades and all this. Uh, and it's because he couldn't understand the purpose um, and the design in, in, this, in this beauty. He, he did formulate a theory about it, uh, and it, it was around the courtship uh, ritual, as you will not be surprised to hear, um, that when the peacock fans its tail, this is a fabulous show, and uh, thought that... Uh, ultimately thought that this must be uh, to enhance the the beautiful male's chances of uh, of, of attracting a, a, an attractive peahen. Um, well, relatively recently, um, uh, researchers in Japan uh, confirmed, a, a, a confirmed, conducted a study over about seven years um, uh, looking into uh, about 268 uh, uh, matings um, uh, of the feral uh, population of Indian peafowl and found actually that the, the scratchy, rather uh, scruffy um, males um, in, enjoyed just as much success in courtship and, and uh, mating uh, as did their more fabulous uh, compadres, uh, for want of a better word. Um, so even the, the, the theory that, that was developed in the end uh, wasn't a very uh, strong one. Uh, it wasn't actually a, a, an aid to successful courtship. Some more uh, thoughts. Um, Paul Davis writing in uh, God for the 21st Century puts it like this. Science is based on the assumption that the universe is thoroughly rational and logical at all levels. Atheists claim that the laws of nature exist reasonlessly and that the universe is ultimately absurd. Uh, I mean, they, they may argue with, with... That's sort of putting their words in their mouth. But what he says is, as a scientist, I find this hard to accept. There must be an unchanging rational ground in which the logical, orderly nature of the universe is rooted. It's called, well, whether you call them the laws of nature or the laws of science, the fact that they are laws means that they can be applied in any given situation. That in itself is an argument for design, that if it works in situation A, it works in situation B. It's an immutable, in that sense, law of science. And without it, the, the universe simply wouldn't exist. Stephen Hawking and Leonard Molodinov in The Grand Design, chapter entitled The Apparent Miracle. The book is called The Grand Design. Again, Stephen Hawking, widely regarded as, as a, a, you know, at the apex of atheistic thinkers, I think. But the chapter entitled The Apparent Miracle. This is what they write. Our, univer our universe and its laws appear to have a design that both is tailor-made to support us and, if we are to exist, 
leaves little room for alteration. This is not easily explained and raises the natural question of why it is that way. Now at this point, we have to avoid being smug and complacent. But if the question is, why is it that way, then why not say, because God made it that way? I did, um, I did use just two sources, um, and not very extensively and not very expertly when, when looking at this. And this, this book by, uh, by Anthony Flew is, is, is powerful. Um, and there's another book here called Reasons, Evidence for God, Jesus and the Bible, uh, edited by Thomas uh, Gaston. Um, and um, there's two chapters in it, uh, which one's called Fine Tuning by Peter Jevons. And Paul Davis is again quoted, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it was designed for life. And then there's the chapter by Paul Boyd, The Origin of Life. Um, again, minds far in advance of mine, certainly scientifically speaking, who uh, will basically say the chances of it coming about by chance, the chance of even a protein being developed or coming about by chance, let alone the DNA that makes up the genetic code, the, 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 the numbers involved, the chances against, are, are mind-numbingly huge. Certainly to a non-mathematician such as I, it's, it's 10 to the power of so many that it's about as many atoms are as there are in the universe, uh, seriously. At least I think that's what it said. It, it, it's, just not, it's just not feasible. Now, we're still left with the problem, if we want to regard it as such. So where does everything come from? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, we, one way or another, we're left with placing our faith, placing our trust in one view of things. But the chances against this all being accidental are, are vanishingly, vanish, well, no, not vanishingly small. The chances against it, the odds against it, are infinitely huge. For me, as a complete layperson, the, the, the propagation of any one species is where I can't get past in terms of the idea of evolution. The idea of, of, of sexual reproduction for the, for the continuance of a species coming about by chance, where the male develops in this way, the female develops in this way, Concurrently, otherwise it wouldn't work, just seems too much. I can't see how species could have developed in that way 
and continue to exist. One more quote. In the uh, in the, the chapter in this book by um, this is the Paul Boyd one. It is consider the comments of the British physicist and atheist Chandra Wickramasinghe. It is quite a shock. From my earliest training as a scientist, I was very strongly brainwashed to believe that science cannot be consistent with any kind of deliberate creation. That notion has had to be very painfully shed. I am quite uncomfortable in the situation, the state of mind I now find myself in. But there is no logical way out of it. Once we see that the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make it absurd, it becomes sensible to think that the favourable properties of physics on which life depends are, in every respect, deliberate. And I did that because it's in quotes. Now, Professor, I assume Professor Wickramasinghe may not want to use the term deliberate without using quotes, but it seems to suggest it's deliberate. It suggests a mind. It suggests a will. It suggests a purpose. For me, it doesn't just suggest... It screams, God. So what are the implications for us? Well, that's for another day as well, really. But, but if we take the notion that God has created the earth, and if, as the writer says, we have been placed at the top of this tree of life, pyramid, whatever, then there are implications for us. God says he didn't create the world to be empty. He created it to be inhabited. That is into infinity, I believe, into perpetuity. He wants this unique earth to be inhabited. It is his will into eternity. What about in the meantime? Does that mean that we can simply shrug and say, well, it doesn't matter what happens to the earth in the meantime... God will restore all things to how he wants them, we believe, when the Lord Jesus returns to establish God's kingdom. I, I don't think we're allowed to think that way. And there may only be one passage to back up what I say, but, but I think we need to take note of, of that brief passage in Revelation where God is saying what will come to the earth. And in Revelation 11 and 18, he says, The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. And then words of warning. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. We saw from the Old Testament the writers saying, you, You've put us at the top here. We, we, we have control, influence, sway over this, this fantastic creation you've, you've given us. And, uh, and we are custodians of the earth. 
And I, I do believe that God as creator looks to see how we are discharging that, that duty, how we are caring for the earth that, that he's put us on. As I said, there will be a time when, when God will restore the earth to the beauty that we believe it, it had in Eden, in, in creation. Um, in the meantime, I, I worry about somebody who says he won't do anything that will jeopardize the business interests of his nation, whatever the, that may be. I worry about a man who puts in charge of a very important department, a man who, who denies the effect that we can have on the climate. Maybe I shouldn't be too overwhelmed or preoccupied with such thoughts. Maybe I should just concentrate on believing in and talking about the fact that God will again restore this earth to its former beauty. And, uh, and to be able to say, uh, to quote somebody, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Christadelphians.org.uk